Israel's NSO group and Conduro have been blacklisted by the United States of America. Massive data leak revealed Pegasus software had targeted the phones of thousands of journalists, activists, and political Pegasus figures around the world. military-grade spyware sold to nation-state governments and agencies, ostensibly to fight crime and terrorism. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and look at how news is reported. Here are the media stories we're examining this week. Pegasus, the Israeli spyware tool exposed by journalists earlier this year, is now in trouble with the American authorities and big tech. Christmas comes early for the British news media. Um, uh, uh. They're feasting on the latest scandal plaguing Boris Johnson's government. The messaging of oil companies has changed with the times, denying the reality of climate change is out, delaying what to do about it is in. And Johnny Cash fans, avert your eyes now. You expect more from Amoco, and you get it. A look back at the singer's side hustle, promoting the oil industry that will leave you feeling hurt. Israel, with its booming technology sector, likes to brand itself Startup Nation. Now, its infamous cyber surveillance export, the spyware tool that's known as Pegasus, looks like it's on its way to being shut down along with the company that built it, NSO. Earlier this year, an international consortium of journalists revealed that Pegasus, which was marketed by the Israeli government as a means of fighting terrorism and crime, has been used by client states to target the phones of journalists, activists, human rights groups, even politicians. Blacklisted by the U.S. government, facing legal action and lawsuits coming out of Silicon Valley, NSO's story has shed some light on an industry that does most of its work in the dark. But even if the company goes down, there are other surveillance firms out there, other spyware tools on the market, and some of their best customers are governments, the same ones that are in charge of regulating this industry and fixing this problem. Our starting point this week is NSO's offices in southern Israel. When NSO, the cyber surveillance firm based in Israel, developed the tool it calls Pegasus, it said the spyware was designed to be used against criminals and terrorists. When the Israeli government licensed Pegasus for export to other countries, it insisted on a custom-made feature designed with its most important ally in mind. So Pegasus does not work when targeting any phone number starting with plus one, the country code for the United States. But some American officials, like diplomats, work overseas. Sometimes they buy local phones and use them. Plus 256 is the country code for Uganda. And, as Apple recently informed the U.S. State Department, Pegasus works there. The recent hacking of nine U.S. diplomats uh, shatter all claims by NSO Group that its spyware and surveillance technologies help governments uh, fight terrorism and crime. Spyware is a threat to human rights, it's a threat to diplomacy, it's a threat to international rules-based order and world peace. And now that this threat is closer to home, we hope that it tips the Biden administration and the European Union to sanction NSO Group and ban the use of this technology. This just shows how little human rights matters to Washington. We knew that journalists were having their phones sabotaged and tracked that dissidents were being targeted, potentially even killed because of this software. 
this was a threat to everything we're supposed to stand for on the global stage and we did nothing because they simply didn't care. Not when it compared to the value of having another surveillance asset, another way to hack into people's phones and to spread the surveillance network even further. This goes back to about 2016, when cybersecurity researchers at the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab started investigating Pegasus. Then Amnesty International got involved, and the journalists at the Paris-based Forbidden Stories gathered evidence on which governments were using the spyware and who they were targeting. It took until last month, however, for the U.S. Department of Commerce to officially blacklist NSO and another Israeli company, Kanduru. NSO is also headed to court in the U.S., taken there by Apple and Facebook, mega companies that are suing the Israeli firm for devaluing products that consumers can no longer trust, like Apple's iPhones and the Facebook-owned WhatsApp. NSO and generally the Israeli cyber, offensive cyber industry has now put itself at odds with perhaps the strongest forces in the world, which is not the White House, but big tech. The American big tech establishment views them as actually more Russia-like, evil actor-like. The fact that Candiro had allowed their clients to exploit Microsoft and NSO allowed people to exploit Apple put them at odds with two of the biggest tech companies in America. Once big tech turns on you, the White House then, you know, needs to pick its battles. If the tech industry is our only safeguard against this sort of tracking, then we're in a very dangerous place. We've seen how Apple has selectively protected its customers' privacy to enable government surveillance of our iCloud accounts, circumventing all of the hardware protections on our iPhones. And while they may be doing the right thing in standing up to NSO groups, I worry that, you know, these sorts of efforts to push back could turn into nothing more than a publicity stunt. Governments were not telling us if they were buying or not the Pegasus uh, spyware. We were having a lot of victims who can do basically nothing and they were just notified that they were the victims. It's hard to be a victim of a cyber attack. It can change your life, it can destroy your life. All your secrets are now in the hands of people who are surveilling you. So we are really at the beginning of a, a big conversation. Israel's cyber surveillance industry is an illegitimate offspring of the occupation. The West Bank and Gaza have been used as laboratories by Israeli military surveillance specialists who, once their army service is complete, take that expertise into the private sector to companies like NSO. It's a similar story in other countries, including China, where some surveillance methods the authorities developed through targeting Muslims in the province of Xinjiang are now used on the rest of the population. Blacklisted and lawyered up, NSO has been made into a pariah. But with so many other companies making spyware in so many places, this problem extends well beyond Israel and China. Israel, of course, is... Uh... Uh, one of the top traders of surveillance tech and 80% uh, of those companies are founded by former IDF soldiers and intelligence officers. Companies like uh, Kandiru and Cellbright have been implicated in human rights violations from Hong Kong uh, to India to Mexico to Venezuela. But Germany, France and others also 
uh, have been hosting uh, companies that sold surveillance technologies implicated in human rights violations in countries like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, uh, Egypt and others. Uh, so it's not only about the NSO group. And in that sense, I would be very scared if NSO were to fall apart because it's not that all these people will now start, you know, volunteering and you try to mend their ways. All this talent will now find a new home in companies whose names we don't know, serving clients that we have yet to report anything about. I think it's the end for, for NSO and that that might actually have in the long term negative effects because they'll kind of disappear off our radar, new companies will be formed, new clients will be found. The problem is not with NSO, it's, it's about the market. There are babies of NSO everywhere, uh, not only in Israel but also in other countries, without regulation, without strong decision, not only from the US but from other governments. I'm not sure that we will see some progress soon which is where the Summit for Democracy is supposed to come in. The gathering was called by the Biden administration this past week on the challenges facing democratic governments, including the threat posed by cyber surveillance. It was a virtual summit. President Biden's screens were loaded with more than 100 global leaders, many of whose governments use surveillance technology on their own populations. The exercise also had a slightly Cold War feel to it since neither China nor Russia, which have produced and exported some of the most sophisticated spyware out there, were invited. We've seen in Shenzhen just a pattern of grotesque human rights abuses. It has been the birthplace of so many surveillance techniques later exported around the world. But I also don't think we can simply treat China as an outlier. Here in the U.S., many of the same techniques, facial recognition, augmented reality policing, social media monitoring, predictive analytics, these same tools are being used in our communities. And yet we treat it as if it's different simply because it's a different government. It's a threat no matter where it happens. The U.S. Uh, Democracy Summit should not be used for political scoring. It offers an opportunity for world leaders to finally come together and tackle this global problem, evident by the recent scandals of NSA Group and the use of its Pegasus spyware. Just the fact that um, there is this intention of forming a coalition of human rights respecting countries is a good signal to the surveillance companies that it's no longer business as usual, that there might be accountability coming. It is a global problem and it requires global solutions. Turning to the UK now, where COVID-19, the ghost of Christmas parties past, and a practice session for a news conference have all landed Prime Minister Boris Johnson's government in the headlines. Minakshi Ravi is here with the details. Richard, this is a story all about government spin. It's lies, actually, and how Boris Johnson and those around him have repeatedly broken the COVID lockdown rules that they have imposed. The left-leaning tabloid The Mirror broke the news that at this point last year, when COVID cases were spiking across the UK and the country was in lockdown, Prime Minister Boris Johnson reportedly hosted a party, a Christmas party, for about 50 people at his residence, number 10 Downing Street. Now, the Prime Minister's office immediately denied that such a party had taken place, but more and more details have since come out, exposing what one commentator calls the carelessness and contempt of the Johnson government. Then this leaked video shows up on ITV News, showing Johnson's spokesperson rehearsing for a press conference. And that video, Richard, takes the government's spin and shatters it. 
Allegra Stratton, who was then Johnson's press secretary, can be seen taking questions about the Christmas party from her colleagues. She's rehearsing her answers, and it's all one big joke. Just seen reports on Twitter that there was a Downing Street Christmas party on Friday night. Do you recognise those reports? <laughs> What's the answer? I don't know. I didn't know. It wasn't a party. It was cheese and wine. Just be clear, it's not. <laughs> this is recorded. This fictional party was a business meeting. <laughs> and it was not socially distanced. Stratton resigned the day after the video was leaked. The Prime Minister said he was sickened by what he saw, and yet he still denies that a party ever took place. Johnson's adept, though, at talking his way out of difficulty. Yes, but this looks and feels different, Richard. The day after the video was leaked, not a single Conservative MP was willing to come onto the media to answer questions or to defend their boss. BBC on its morning show made a point of this by leaving an empty chair on set. And here's what ITV's anchors had to say. We are still waiting for somebody from the government to turn up today, aren't we? Um, we certainly are. The yeah, 830 slot is available. Yeah. yeah, if any Conservative MP, anybody connected to the government is watching and you would like to take your duty and answer to those people, the 140,000 people who lost family members whilst people parted mm -hmm. in Downing Street. If you would like to come and address those constituents, we would love to have you. And it's never a good sign for a government when unsavoury news shows up on entertainment shows, as it did on the reality TV show called I'm a Celebrity. They categorically deny any suggestions that they had a party. <laughs> and this fictional party definitely didn't involve cheese and wine <laughs> or a secret Santa. <laughs> Evening, Prime Minister! <laughs> British media are all over the story, Richard. Okay, thanks, Mina. To the aftermath now of the COP26 climate summit last month. Nearly 200 countries signed the final agreement, the Glasgow Climate Pact. And for the first time in COP history, that agreement mentions slashing fossil fuel emissions. But the shortcomings are in the details. Early drafts of that agreement called for a fossil fuel phase-out, a phrase that was subsequently diluted to a phase down. And that is language that has the fingerprints of the oil and gas industry all over it. After years of outright climate denial, fossil fuel companies are now out to delay, downplaying the urgency, slowing efforts to curb emissions. And their advertising continues to take the true nature of their business and misrepresent it. Tucked away somewhere in their playbook of PR strategies is a tactic called greenwashing designed to protect their interests. The Listening Post's Tarek Nafa now on the evolution and the impact of propaganda emitted by the oil and gas industry. Fossil fuel companies have never had trouble getting a seat at the table at climate summits like COP. This year was different. Companies like BP and Shell were told they weren't welcome at COP26 despite months of intense lobbying. But that didn't stop hundreds of operatives from the world of oil and gas swarming Glasgow, unofficially, with a delegation larger than any country. There were 503 <laughs> delegates from the fossil fuel industry, uh, which made them the largest delegation of any at COP. And I don't think that we should be surprised because they've been involved in the COP process from jump. This COP in Glasgow was the very first one that they said fossil fuel can't sponsor 
anything related to cough. Um, but it didn't kick them out of the process. They're, they're there in force. So when you got to COP, it's not like you walked in and it was like sponsored by Shell, right? Screw like sponsoring COP. If you can get people in the room, that's even better, right? This is the first time that we've even mentioned fossil fuels at all in the text. And so while that's a historic moment, it also really shows the scope of this industry's influence on this entire process. And that's not really that surprising if you know anything about how oil and gas companies are able to market themselves. In the 1970s, fossil fuel executives were advised by their own scientists that burning their product would lead to catastrophic global warming. They continued funding climate denial anyway. In June this year, a senior lobbyist at ExxonMobil was secretly recorded during a sting by activists at Greenpeace. This is how he described that decades-long campaign of disinformation. Did we aggressively fight against um, uh, some of the science? Uh, yes. Did we join some of these shadow groups uh, to work against uh, some of the early efforts? Yes, that's true. But the climate denial of the past doesn't wash anymore. Instead, the industry is now pushing for delay. They're really not trying to say that climate change isn't happening or even that fossil fuels don't contribute to it. So they've really embraced instead this tactic of trying to delay action as long as possible. There's pushing non-transformative solutions. Carbon capture and storage can remove more than 90% of CO2 emissions. Exxon is very, very big on carbon capture. It's almost all they're advertising right now. It's one of the ways ExxonMobil is advancing climate solutions. You would think if you just watched their ads that all they do is carbon capture, but in fact, they invest less than 1% of their capital in anything other than fossil fuels. Oil companies have become very good at recognizing ways to phrase what they want you to hear, which is that they're acting on climate while continuing to produce oil and gas. All across BP, we are changing. A great example of this that I've seen pop up more and more is the phrase low carbon. We're creating new and improved low carbon products. The phrase low carbon doesn't mean anything though. I mean, it's very easy to be lower carbon than a barrel of oil or a pile of coal. Over the last few years, we've exhaustively studied the climate communications by ExxonMobil. What we found were systematic discrepancies between on the one hand, what Exxon and ExxonMobil scientists said in academic circles and behind closed doors versus on the other what the company told the general public on the op-ed page of the New York Times and elsewhere. We found that they publicly fixate on consumer energy demand and on the role of energy efficiency rather than on the fossil fuels that they actually supply. This has the overall effect of shifting responsibility for the climate crisis away from companies and onto their customers. ExxonMobil told us their public statements about climate change are, and have been, truthful, fact-based, transparent, and consistent with the views of the broader, mainstream scientific community at the time. But fossil fuel companies can see the writing on the wall, so they're no longer selling a product, they're selling an idea. They want consumers to know that they are indispensable partners in a green, new future and platforms like Facebook and Instagram are where they're targeting audiences with ads that detoxify or greenwash their image. 
Facebook's ad library is a window into how these companies position themselves as part of the solution. Like this one, which features some of the brightest minds at Shell. I say I work in renewable energy, and they go to me, what's that mean, mummy? But then I talk about the solar panels you see on people's roofs, the big wind turbines. I help the energy that those things produce get into people's homes. These campaigns are subtle and increasingly aspirational, playing on our desire to travel and explore the world. All you have to do is follow the road. Phillips 66. Live to the full. Shell and ConocoPhillips tapped different types of influencers for the different types of audiences they wanted to reach. I found this one influencer who took this Shell-sponsored trip to Joshua Tree and had this really beautiful sepia video of her wandering around Joshua Tree. What I also saw was Shell starting to use social media to greenwash their products. But thanks to Shell, there's a way to both explore nature and to reduce our carbon footprint at the same time. They told customers that they could buy oil that then Shell would purchase what's known as an offset. And the people they tapped for this campaign were environment photographers, wildlife photographers. Now more than ever, it's important that we protect these beautiful places. It was very clearly, we care about the environment, you do too, you should buy our oil. A Shell spokesperson told us we are letting our customers know through advertising or social media what lower carbon solutions we offer so they can switch when the time is right for them. The public relations industry emerged 100 years ago as a response to rising public distrust of big business. An early adopter of these dark arts was an American called Ivy Lee. Lee pioneered PR techniques like press releases and corporate philanthropy while working for Standard Oil, a company feared and reviled in equal measure. In the 1970s, a successor of Standard Oil, Mobil, which later became ExxonMobil, launched a campaign that continues to this day, using paid content disguised as editorial, advertorials, that were printed on the opinion pages of the New York Times. This is one of the largest and most systematic efforts to influence public opinion in the history of modern America. Mobile and then ExxonMobil took out advertorials starting in 1972, every Thursday for 29 years on the op-ed page of the New York Times, and then every other Thursday for another decade after that. In the 80s, Mobile actually concluded that their advertorials had affected what they called the collective unconscious of America. They had got into the minds of opinion leaders who, and this is a quote, molded general public opinion. Well, let's call it by its proper name, the propaganda industry. It is, you know, using information and stories to change people's minds at a, at a group level, at sort of a mass society level. And they are very good at it. John W. Hill, who's like the guy who created the tobacco industry's science denial campaign, he was working for the American Petroleum Institute and Texaco at the same time. You see these techniques show up later and you're like, well, yeah, because they're all working for, for multiple industries at the same time and they definitely share information. Oil and gas companies helped invent a lot of modern advertising. They've always been so good at this. They're really good at this. I never really saw myself working for an energy company, but the more I learned, the more motivated I became to make a difference. And I think that what people 
really need to start doing is really questioning what's behind the messaging. We know we really need to stop using fossil fuels as soon as possible. And any solutions that don't get us closer to that end date are not real climate solutions. It doesn't matter how many buzzwords you put on it, if you're putting emissions into the planet, it's not a climate solution. And finally, one last example of messaging from the fossil fuel industry from a half century ago. Back then, oil and gas companies were still getting a relatively free ride from critics. Some of their TV commercials were fronted by the kinds of celebrities who wouldn't touch oil money today for fear of the stigma. Johnny Cash, for instance, was a legendary country singer, a voice of the working man. Cash was also the face of some of America's biggest polluters at the time, companies like Amico and Standard Gasoline. He was an influencer long before Instagram came along. We'll leave you now with Johnny Cash walking the line on behalf of Big Oil. See you next time here at the Listening Post. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. When we were kids, we all dreamed of owning a car of our own someday. Well, for most of us, a dream came true. Even if it isn't brand new, you still want to take good care of it. Standard gasolines can help. Folks have always trusted that standard quality. Emico Oil is doing all they can to get more energy to us. But until the shortage eases, it's up to all of us to make what there is go further. There's a shortage of energy, but not of the American spirit. Keep your spirit up. The spirit of conservation for the sake of America. This Excalibur is a mighty fancy set of wheels. It's something different. And this Amoco Super Premium is different too. It's high octane, it's lead free, and they tell me it's even heavier than other gasolines. And it's not just different to be different, it's different to be better. You expect more from Amoco and you get it.